this is part two of Katie Palmer, A Disgraceful Investigation. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be way too confused to listen to this, especially because part two is just diving right back into where we left off on part one. When he was hit, John had fractured a few of his vertebrae in his back. He broke a few ribs and he had bruising on his internal organs. But he wasn't going to let that stop him from leaving the hospital to be with his kids and say goodbye to the wife that he had loved so deeply for the last two decades. Katie Palmer was absolutely amazing. She was a mom of two kids. Today, their oldest, a daughter named Bella, is 16 years old, and their youngest, a son named Brandon, is 14 years old. John said she was the most amazing mom he could have ever imagined for his kids. Her family was her priority, and she took her nurturing nature and put that love into her students as well. She always stepped up when she had students in need of clothes and other essential items. She was there for the kids who had no one else. In fact, the middle school she taught at has cleaned out a room that they filled with clothes for students in need, and they honor her by calling it Katie's Closet. But those those couple weeks after um, Katie was, was killed and I, and I was, was, was hurt, um, man, I, I leaned on my kids, and that's a hard thing to say as a parent. That's, you know, because you're always supposed to be there for your, your kids. They're going through the same, same thing. But um, they were and they and they are amazing, and um, I'm so thankful that um, that I met Katie, and that um, she chose me, and we had kids t- together, and um, she's she's gone and she's never going to be back. Um, I I know that, but um, I've got these two fantastic kids, and. I consider myself lucky, even though um, <clears throat> what we've gone through has been horrible, and I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. Um, and we've suffered this big loss, but I still consider myself a lucky man to have been with her for 19, 20 years um, and had something that was just genuine and solid and truly awesome. Um, regardless of everything that's, that's, that's happened, I consider myself a lucky man and um, a proud dad. Well, not everyone gets to experience like having a true love in their life and being able to have kids with them. And I mean, it's devastating that you, of course, would want her here for your whole life. But like you said, like you feel lucky that you even got to know her and yeah her story is just heartbreaking to me because I mean of course like my number one fear is losing my own children but then my second fear is to be taken from my own children so I you know like you said she raised great kids that are resilient and I'm I'm so sorry for them that they're living, you know, like the rest of their lives without their mom, but hopefully she can kind of like live on with them. Hopefully you can see her inside of them. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely can sometimes. So, Oh, I love it. Katie had gone into this job at the middle school about four years before her death after a lifelong dream of being a teacher. 
She loved learning and teaching. She thrived when she was diving into nature and science. But she had put those dreams of hers to the side for a while, and she did this because she wanted to help support her husband and then be there for her kids. You see, Katie was a military wife, a tough job that only someone special can get through with grace. I proposed to her, and I had uh, decided to join the military um, back in 2003, and I proposed to her um, before I left in June of 2004 to go into the military. Um, she stayed back in Sherman. I went through basic training and eventually ended up in Gulfport, Mississippi. That's where my battalion was stationed. And she was working towards getting her teaching license. And um, I had gotten orders when I got through with um, basic training and my training af after that. I was sent to Gulfport, and we thought we'd have, you know, six, seven months together before I got deployed. So she stopped what she was doing, which was uh, she was doing like a, like a one-year um, teaching assignment. So then after that one year, she could get her, her license. Well, she wanted to come spend time with me. Uh, we had gotten married um, right after I got out of my training school out of boot camp. And she wanted to come spend time with me. We were newlyweds, so she put her life on hold. Came up to Gulfport, and again, we thought we'd have a lot of a lot of time together. And um, we had about three weeks, and then I got deployed, and um, she went back to Denison. So she she split her time between Denison, Texas, and uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. I, literally, out of the four years that I was in the military. Um, I was gone or in training probably two, two and a half out of those four years. Man, I was deployed to Africa, and um, that's when our first child was born, uh, Bella. I missed it by about two, three weeks. I was in um, Djibouti, Africa, and I got to, you know what, at least I got to listen to it on the phone. And I remember I was an absolute nervous wreck, and there was a like a seven, eight second delay in in the phone call. So I'd say something and then there'd be a silence and she'd say something. So kept on kind of over talking one another just because of the delay. And uh, finally I, I just stopped talking and I was just talking a million miles a second. And um, she was just calm. And um, <laughs> I, I remember her saying pretty much on, on her last push that, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and have this, this baby. And next, next thing I heard was, um, daughter and Katie was just so strong and so confident in everything that she 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 did um that um you know her her being here without me uh but being with her family who's been always supportive of everything um her just being there and I don't want to say by herself because she I mean her family again was just so supportive of her and us, but, um, you know, me, me not being here, um, um, if that bothered her, then, um, she sure didn't let me know. So she was just, just a strong, confident, always in control person. She put her whole life on hold. You know, she had been working towards getting a teaching degree and then, um, she stopped what she was doing in order to 
support me. Uh, she put her life on hold, and that's that's a lot to ask some some somebody, um, especially when you just don't know how long that you actually have. Um, but that's just the kind of person that she was. So John and Katie's love story starts out in the cutest way. Before marriage and the military and the kids, they met while attending the same college. Katie had been born in Denison, Texas, and raised there all of her life. We know this is where the Palmers lived at the time Katie is killed, so they were raising their family there in her hometown. Katie was born on May 3, 1981, as Katie Aaron Tipton, to her parents Rhonda and Tony. Ultimately, her mom and dad were divorced, and her mom stayed there in Denison while her dad moved to Caney. So she went back and forth between the two places, and she grew up to remain super close with her parents. Katie's mom was her best friend, and she talked with her dad on the phone every day. Uh, She graduated from Denison ISD and went to Austin College, which is in Sherman, Texas. And that's just, that's the town just south of us, um, where she majored in biology and studied a lot of ornithology, which is the study of birds. At Austin College, again, it strengthened her love for science and nature, and um, that's where we first first met. So I'm 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 from Dallas. She's from Denison. We both attended Austin College, and um, we started dating my senior year. And uh, one thing led to another, and she was the one. We both lived in the same apartment complex, and um, she knew my two roommates. She had lived there. Uh, for a while, and uh, one of my roommates had had that apartment for a year or two before I moved in, and she kept on getting locked out of her apartment and coming over to our apartment and waiting for her roommate to get home, and which would just consist of us hanging out and watching TV until her roommate got home. Um, and I kept on saying, you should really leave a key over here uh, because you're kind of forgetful. You're always getting locked out. It'd make more sense if you left a key over here. And one of my roommates came up to me and said, you, you realize that, you know, she's, she's not misplacing her key. She's just coming over here to spend time with, with you. Um, <laughs> again, I'm kind of hard. He caught the gist before you. <laughs> so, so I've, I've finally caught on and, um, we spent a lot more time together and one thing led to another and we ended up getting married in 2004. So Started dating in about 2001, got married in 2004. So we know what happens from here. Yeah. They get married, John joins the military, and they have their daughter while he's still in the military. And then it's before they have their second child, which happens just after he gets out of the military, when he's serving in Japan. And Katie calls him up and he's like, hey, no, she, not he. She calls him and she's like, hey, me and my mom bought a house. John is a little shocked. He's taken back. Like, wait, what? He actually always thought they would end up in Dallas, where he was from. Why Denison? And she said, uh, you know, um, you, you've been gone two out of the first four years that we've been married. Um, I want to move back closer to my family. And um, this is where I want to raise my kids. Um, I, I couldn't argue with that. So glad that we moved to Denison. This has been a great, a great town. The people here are fantastic, and they have been very supportive of us uh, throughout our, our entire fight. And um, 
with everything that has happened to our family over the past two and a half years. It was 2008 when John and Katie Palmer moved to Denison full-time to raise their kids. This is where Katie is able to follow her dreams and start teaching. Once her youngest starts into kindergarten, it was her time to do what she loved. And like, what a perfect schedule. She can teach during the same hours he's in school. It just works out great. Uh, I believe Brandon was in kindergarten or first grade, and she started to take long-term substitute teaching jobs with Denison ISD. And that just led to her getting her certification, and then um, she taught at the high school for, I think, a year or, or so as a long-term sub, and then uh, started at Scott Middle School where she was teaching science, and she was teacher of the year multiple times at that campus. She even brought a STEM program to Scott Middle School. Um, again, uh, she loved nature and science, and she loved learning. <clears throat> and I think to be a good teacher, uh, you have to enjoy the whole teaching process, and part of that is learning. You know, you, you have to learn new things, and then you have to um, demonstrate your, your craft by teaching that to your students. And STEM was right up her alley. She loved it. She took her students to robotics competitions in, in Dallas. Um, we even, there was one summer where we chaperoned a group of students, uh, 16 of them, um, to California. And we started it in Northern California and ended up in LA. And it was STEM based and supposed to be geared towards the kids, which it absolutely was. But uh, I, I think Katie probably had more fun than any one of those six, 16 kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it, when it came, came to science and nature, um, you know, that, that was her, her jam totally. I want to play an audio clip here that's shared on the Justice for Katie Instagram page. And it's of Katie, a video from her time remotely teaching during those early days of COVID. And it just gives you this little insight into what an incredible and passionate teacher Katie was. Hey guys, I've missed y'all so much. And I miss joking around and just having a good time in class. So um, I have an idea that maybe this week for our office hours on Wednesday, I will attach a link below. And for our one o'clock meeting, um, I would like for you guys to bring your pets with you. And let's zoom and uh, see everybody's pets. Um, I have six pets at the house, so um, I know you guys are missing Honey and Winnie. And um, I can introduce you to my other four animals as well. So uh, click on the link underneath the video in Schoology, and let's all get together on Wednesday. So clearly Katie made an impact on this community. She was someone that many people loved and losing her creates this big hole in Denison, Texas, the place that she always called home. So in the weeks following Katie's death, the community along with Katie's family is getting a little antsy to know what will come of this terrible tragedy. Yeah. Are they arresting Corey Foster? Will anyone be held responsible for the death of this mother taken from her children far too soon? It was strange, right? Because after Officer Alcatib didn't arrest Corey that day, we know he simply gives Corey a ride home before coming back to have those really gross conversations. And that's where things sat. While Katie's family still had to see Corey's truck pass once in a while, 
the dent in his hood still visible where Katie's head hit. I mean, remember, they're neighbors, so it's not like they're just going every day without ever, you know, catching a glimpse of Corey. Yeah. So they're obviously calling the district attorney's office to get in contact with Brett Smith, the current DA in Grayson County. And he's still the DA to this day right now in 2022. Brett had told me that he was, he had heard of the case, but hadn't actually got the case. Um, so he, there's nothing he could comment on, said that I probably knew more than he, he did, which is fair. Um, said, okay. Um, and he goes, you know, when... We get it. Um, somebody will be in contact. Fine. You know, if you don't have the case, there's nothing we, we can do. A couple weeks pass by, two or three more weeks pass by, and um, Katie's mom wants answers, as does everybody else. Okay? So Rhonda, Katie's mom, is calling the DA's office, but she can't get in contact with Brett. So she's searching for him on Facebook. And jackpot because she finds him. And what do you know? Brett, an elected official, has his number posted right there for the public to see. So Rhonda calls him and she's like, hey, it's Katie Palmer's mom. I'm tr- I've been trying to get a hold of you. I need to know if anything is going on with my daughter's case. And Brett is pissed. He's like, this is my personal phone number. You are not allowed to contact me here. Which look, okay, you don't want your personal number being used for work, but you're the DA and you have it on Facebook. And a grieving mom is going to get in contact with you if they want answers in their daughter's death. Hey, I'll get a hold of you any way I can. <laughs> exactly. And I guess he was like way mean to her. It is appropriate if you're not doing your job. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Mothers will track you down. Exactly. But Brett goes on to tell Katie's mom, who just lost her daughter a few short weeks ago, that he doesn't know anything about her death. She should not call an elected official on their personal cell phone. I have no clue about your daughter. Don't know who she is. Don't call me again. Let's say this is your your daughter and yeah. you've just been told told that, okay? Oh. Uh, your anger level is going to be at an 11 on a scale from 1 to 5. Yeah, I'd want to come through the phone. Absolutely. We don't have a voice, okay? Um, we don't have a podcast, uh, we don't have a platform mm-hmm. like, like the DA's office, so our platform is social media. So yeah. she took to social media and put her interaction with Brett Smith on social media. Well, Katie was loved in this in this community, loved. So people were mad. When family and friends heard that, there was an uproar and a um, lot, lot more phone calls were being made, a lot more... Negative comments were being made on social media about about Brett Smith, and rightfully so, as they should have have been. Now, Brett Smith is getting crap on Facebook from people who care about Katie and don't appreciate his treatment of her family. Well, now Brett is going to step up and do the right thing, right? Let's see. He calls John soon after this, and John has a tinge of hope, thinking, okay, finally, we're going to be able to talk about Katie's case. But no, that's not what Brett wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the social media post and how he's being treated so unfairly. Well, John is thinking that this is the person who will find justice for his wife. This is the man who's going to be fighting for his family. 
So he tells Brett that he's sorry. He will try to have people back off of him a bit. He'll explain to them that it's a process. So John does. He helps Brett fix up his image a little bit. But when more weeks pass by with no communication and no answers, the public isn't waiting any longer. They can see right through the BS. So they come for him again. And look, that's no one's fault except for his own. He decided to treat Katie's mom like she didn't matter. He is the one not answering any questions. And only he is responsible for his reputation. If he wanted the perception of himself changed, he should have done the work to fix it himself. But no, he calls up John a second time. And here we go again with all the whining about how he looks on social media because of them. And I get his second call from Brett Smith. Same type of conversation, okay? So social media, I'm being portrayed unfairly. Um, and I actually apologized to him. I said, man, I'm sorry. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Again, not knowing <laughs> then what I know, know now, that conversation would have gone completely different. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he's just using you to get his name better from his own conversation, his own words, that he is the reason that his reputation's not good. And then he's using you to help him, but he doesn't plan on helping you. This couldn't, couldn't have said it better. But through this second phone call, at least there is a meeting set up between John, Rhonda, Tony, and one of Katie's brothers. This meeting is with the DA, Brett Smith, along with two other prosecutors, Don Hoover and Laura Willer. John comes into this meeting wanting to talk about Katie. This is her case, and he wants them to know her, who she was, where she came from, how important she was to their family. If we're going to talk about Katie, I wanted them to know who Katie was, right? So, had a picture of, you know, our wedding, picture of Katie and the kids, picture of Katie and her mom, Katie and her family, Katie and her dad, Katie at her brother's wedding, and talked about each picture, and the prosecutors were looking at it, passing around. Uh, one of them went to hand Brett a picture, and Brett was kind of sitting, or pardon me, standing in the corner of the, um, of the room with his arms crossed, leaning against the wall, and said, I've seen all this on, on Facebook. I don't need to see any of them. I basically didn't want to look at anything that we had. Um, this was our relationship with our district attorney. Okay. Well, John's just like, all right, well, I'm going to keep talking anyway and finish up what I'm saying about her. And then you can go ahead and take over. Yeah. Once John finishes up talking about Katie, Brett stands up and what do you think he's focused on? Oh, definitely the social media wow. thing again, how he is unfairly portrayed. For Brett, this meeting wasn't about Katie at all. It was all about himself. He ends out this meeting by telling Rhonda to call off her jihad, and then he's laughing to himself awkwardly oh because gosh. no one else is laughing. This isn't a joke. Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't want that going around or he won't get voted in again. <laughs> well, that's what they're going for now. Yeah, good. The meeting was ended with uh, Brett saying that um, they would look look at the case um, and somebody would get back to us. Now, in this meeting also, Brett said that Tarif had missteps in his investigation, uh, did a bad job, should have gotten blood, don't know why he didn't get blood, and that it was a very bad report that had been kicked back a couple times. And then Brett went on this um, kind of 
dialogue where he was uh, bad-mouthing smaller um, towns and their law enforcement and kind of comparing, you know, Therese Report to some of the smaller town officers that I guess don't give uh, great crash re re reports. So um, right there, the seed was planted in our head that um, Trey Falcatee did a bad job, did a horrible job, and that was cemented by, pardon me, that was planted by Brett Smith. Soon, Katie's family is meeting with Carrie Ashmore and Nathan Young. Carrie works for the district attorney's office and is the prosecutor who's going to take on Katie's case. It's August 19th, 2020, that Carrie and Nathan present Katie's case to a grand jury. Yeah, good. Yeah. If you guys don't know, what is presented to a grand jury is always private. We will never know exactly what evidence is put forward because grand juries are secret. A grand jury will decide if an indictment against someone accused of a crime can be brought forward. John Palmer testified during this grand jury as well as Officer Tariff Alcatid. And someone from Closing Speed Consulting that did that crash reconstruction, they testify as well. The grand jury denies this indictment. But why? Well, isn't so the evidence doesn't count that he hit him and he said it was foggy and he had some alcohol? A lot of what John says is like basically if a district attorney wants an indictment, they're most likely going to get it. But if they don't, then like they don't. Yeah. And here's why. Grand jury in Texas consists of 12. Okay. We had 10. Um, one person called in sick and another person recused himself. When I asked Kerry Ashmore where were the alternates, he shrugged his shoulders and didn't know. Okay. Um, his, just as, uh, as a sidebar, his wife is the district clerk who controls the jury pool. So I think that um, he sure as hell should have known um, where the alternates were, but didn't. That third party report, there's a third party report that came out about this crash that was damning against Corey Foster. That report wasn't finalized until six days after the grand jury. Okay, so the grand jury did not have this report. In addition, Corey Foster's cell phone records uh, were not presented to the grand jury either. And I'm going to get on those here in a, in a second. So this was no no build, okay? Um, Carrie Ashmore did a horrible job at uh, preparing for this. Didn't have that finalized third-party report. Uh, even though they told me numerous times they were going to get those cell phone records, never got them. Never got them. Didn't even subpoena them. Okay. I mean, take that aside. Um, a prosecutor could have walked in there and said, this guy admits to driving blind down his road for three tenths of a mile, which is 38 seconds at 32 miles per hour, crossed over the roadway, hit two people. Okay. Um, there is enough to move forward with a criminal trial. That's it. Um, a prosecutor gets an indictment if a prosecutor wants an indictment. Carrie Ashmore and Brett Smith did not want an indictment. And I think egos came into play play there. Um, I think that Al-Khatib um, wanted to do his buddy solid, called the DA's office and said, oh, man, you know, this was just a, a horrible, tragic accident, just a really bad cir circumstance, um, not, not a big deal. You know, we're just going to let this go. And... Um, Ashmore uh, did not do his due diligence in reviewing everything. Uh, didn't even have all the documents ready 
for the grand jury presentation and didn't even request some very important documents for that grand jury presentation. Yeah, that's really weird. Can they do a civil suit against him or are they just waiting for a criminal? Well, that's what they're going for now. Katie's family is devastated. Where do they go from here? It was clearly presented that only one person was responsible for Katie's death. Even with it being something that Corey Foster did not do intentionally, he should have been easily charged with manslaughter, which is when a person commits an offense if he recklessly causes the death of an individual. Regardless of what story or narrative you believe, Corey was either driving while impaired or at the very least he was driving while he couldn't see, admitting that he should have pulled over. This is manslaughter. In a document that John created with these definitions, he cites the definition of culpable mental states. This is when a person acts recklessly or is reckless with respect to circumstances surrounding his conduct or the result of his conduct when he is aware of but consciously disregards substantial and unjustifiable risk that the circumstances exist or that the result will occur. The risk must be of such nature and degree that its disregard constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of care that an ordinary person would exercise. I mean, this is exactly what this case is. It's not like Katie's family is asking for Corey to be put to death. They're just asking that he faces a consequence. That is nothing in comparison to the life that was lost. What is a year or two compared to the rest of Katie's life being ripped away from her? I mean, did Corey even lose his license or get a freaking ticket? I don't know. But the base sentence for involuntary manslaughter is only a 10 to 16 month prison sentence, possibly increased if the crime is committed during reckless conduct. You just can't tell me that this doesn't fit Katie's case. One thing that grates me to, to no end, the district attorney's office and the prosecutors in that office, right? Their whole job is to hold people accountable, right? They take away from us the most important thing that we have. And you, you can ask any person on their deathbed, what's the most important thing? They're not going to say cars. They're not going to say... Uh, money, they're not going to say, uh, you know, clothes, it's time. And these prosecutors and the district attorneys take the most important things we have away, the most important thing that we have, and that's time. They hold us accountable, they take our time away. One year, five years, 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, 50 years. They hold everybody accountable, and they're lauded for it. There's Facebook pages of district attorneys all over the place. You know, we put this guy away and took took away 10 years of his life, 20 years of his life, but they're lauded for what they do for holding people accountable and taking away time. But when they are asked to be held accountable themselves, it's almost like a God complex that uh, some of these guys have to where they are angered that you would even suggest that there's any kind of impropriety or impartiality of anything that happens and that's so damn hypocritical of every single one of them especially in this case you hold people accountable and you take away the most valuable thing that we have which is time and then when somebody wants to hold you accountable um, you hold it against them 
But this isn't even all of the evidence. What if I told you that Corey was likely on his cell phone when he swerved across the road and killed Katie? It's 18 months down the line when John and his lawyer obtain Corey's cell phone records. This happens during their civil discovery because they are actively at that time and still today pursuing a civil suit against Corey Foster for the wrongful death of Katie Palmer. The timeline that we put together would proves that Corey Foster was manually dialing a number as he crossed over the roadway and hit us. So not only was he driving blind, um, so he, he, was, he was driving blind. He was um, cognitively impaired with the alcohol in his system. And then he was distracted by the use of his cell, cell phone. If that doesn't scream recklessness, then I have no clue what recklessness means. Each thing on its own is enough for reckless, especially the phone and dialing in at that time you cross. I mean, that's that you need nothing else. No, well, you need a competent prosecutor and you need a DPS yeah. officer that you need people who uh, care. wants to do their job. Um, so, but, but that the, the phone records show that 31 seconds before he called 911, he dialed a number with a 903 area code. Nine, 903 is our local area code here. He called a friend's mom to, he was going by her house to pick up some guys to help him do some work that day. Okay. So 31 seconds before he called 911, he dialed this number. The only plausible timeline, because again, it's 38 seconds from his mailbox to the point of impact, okay? And he told DPS, and it's on body camera footage, they asked him, what did you do when you realized that you hit, hit, hit them? He said he stopped his car, which he came to a rolling stop. He didn't slam on his brakes because there were no brake marks. Came to a rolling stop. He, he came to a stop, saw it was us, then immediately called 911. Okay? So if we're taking him at, at his word, he got out of his truck and called 911. Um, the neighbor that showed up a minute after said that when she was on scene, Corey was already in the middle of the road on his phone. Okay? Presumably with 911. So we take everything at face value, because that's what DPS did, right? We take everything at face value on what Corey said. Now, the only plausible timeline is that as Corey was driving down the roadway, he was looking down, calling his friend's mom's number, uh, dialed that, that in, had the phone in his, his hand, um, hit send, crossed over the roadway, hit us, came to a rolling stop, got out of his his truck and heard me shouting for somebody to call the police, call the cops. That's when he made his statements to us, okay? And he was already away from his truck at that, that time because we have another neighbor, uh, again, and if DPS had actually done their job and talked to these people, they, they would have known this, that saw Corey out of his kitchen window after he heard the impact. Corey got out of his truck and walked around his truck, Okay, got out and walked walked away from his his truck, um, but again, uh, Treef didn't bother to talk to anybody on scene. Heard heard me yelling for somebody to call the cops. Saw what he did. Again, didn't have time to go run back to his truck. Looked down, had a cell phone in his hand. Ended the call. Dialed nine one one. 
hit send two seconds later. That all ha- that all happened. It's the only plausible timeline at all. These cell phone records, along with the documents narrowing down the timeline, which I have seen, were turned over to the district attorney's office. And this is regardless of the fact that the district attorney's office had told them before the first grand jury a year and a half earlier that they would get the cell phone records themselves. But they never do. So John hands them over and lets them know what they found out themselves. So they take the evidence and they're reviewing it. Some time passes when all of a sudden John gets this phone call around 4.30 p.m. on a weekday. It's Carrie Ashmore and he's like, hey, so we're presenting the evidence to a grand jury tomorrow. But when John asks if they need him to testify again, Carrie is like, nope, I'll let you know how it goes. Something didn't seem right. Why are you calling me at 4.30 the day day before? Um... Why am I not being able to testify? I tried, tried to call him back, and he wouldn't take my call. And then I had his cell phone, and I sent him a message. And the text exchange ended with me saying, I do not want you to present this to a grand jury unless it is a full 12-person grand jury. They're presented with everything. The body camera footage... The third-party report that was finalized six days after the first grand jury, uh, the testimony from the expert, and my testimony as well. I don't want an abridged version of this case presented along with just some phone phone records. I want a full presentation. I think we deserve that. Um, he didn't respond to that text. About 6 a.m. that next morning, I called and left a message for Brett Smith and Carrie Ashmore that Rhonda Nail and I, again, Katie's mom, were going to be there that morning and wanted to talk to them before they presented anything to the grand grand jury. We got there about 7.45, asked to speak to Carrie and Brett numerous times. Uh, They denied. So what do you think happened? Take a wild guess. I'm sure you got it right. Carrie Ashmore presents the case without returning John's phone calls or listening to his wishes or communicating at all. He just walks out to finally meet with John, who has been waiting on him and basically begging for some communication. And Carrie says, well, it's in the hands of the grand jury now. John and Rhonda are taken back. Like, why is it in their hands? What do you what did you present? And this is when Carrie looks Katie's mom in the face and says, I don't need to explain myself. I'm damn good at my job. And then he walks away, closing his office door behind him. That guy sounds like a douche. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Then he comes back out, I don't know, 30 minutes later, 20 minutes later, and um, says that the the grand jury declined to move forward with this. And Kayla, at at that point, um, I completely lost it on, on Carrie. I don't blame you. Uh, what I told him that day, I probably won't repeat on your podcast now, but I, again, I meant every damn word <laughs> of it, and I was so loud, um, it emptied out the sheriff's office, and they they came out, and uh, Kerry ran back into to his office. Well, what's comical, what's comical to me is that he says, I'm damn good at my job, but it's, if you're not being kind to the people you're working for, if you're not focused on the victim and their families, then you're not good at your job, actually. He's he's so damn good at his job that he didn't get the phone records. Uh, he didn't wait for the third-party report to get done. 
I, I, I don't know what he could have possibly told that second grand jury, but again, I'm going to go off um, this statement that's been told to me by many prosecutors. Um, if a prosecutor wants an indictment, a prosecutor gets an indictment. A prosecutor asks for an indictment, but I don't know if this came from maybe Kerry Ashmore's ego or from the top down from Brett Smith's ego where he uh, directed Kerry Ashmore what, what to do, but um, they didn't want to get an indictment at all, at all, because they, they did such a bad job. He did such a bad job, that first grand jury, that if it would have gotten out that, well, here's, here's a deal, my attorney went out and did his job and got the phone records that you guys promised 18 months ago, and now it gets in, indicted. Well, they couldn't have that, that egg on their face. So it's definitely e ego-driven. It always is when they're doing like these horrible jobs. It's always ego-driven. It's like, just swallow your pride. You're an elected official. And, yeah. you know, you need to check your pride at the door and do your damn job. So, obviously, this case was just being mishandled left and right. Friendships and egos are getting in the way of proper investigation and proper prosecution. And there are far more personal relationship ties than just Corey Foster and Officer Tariff Alkatib. But we'll get into all of that in a minute. It's too much, you guys. First, remember when I mentioned jury tampering? Well, the first grand jury that did not bring forward an indictment was done on a Tuesday. And it's that weekend, on a Sunday, just days after the grand jury denies the indictment, that Nathan Young, Carrie Ashmore, and Carrie's wife, who is that district cl clerk, you know, the one that controls the jury pool, they all have a little barbecue pool party at the Ashmore's house. And guess who's there? One of the impaneled grand jury members who is still serving on the grand jury. Oh my God. The best part is that there's a photo of this party and it's posted on social media with our juror, juror plain and clear to see. Carrie quotes the post with a quote, and a few friends dropped by Sunday afternoon for a not so serious water volleyball and burgers. Lots of fun from a great group. Thanks y'all. Oh, wow. is this not the type of thing that convictions get overturned for? Like, if they would have handed down an indictment and gotten a conviction, couldn't Corey's lawyers then go and have the case thrown out based on the personal collect connection this juror had to the prosecutor? Yeah. I mean, seriously, tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I do not know all the laws, especially surrounding, like, a grand jury but I feel like if you're such close friends with someone that they will be coming to your house to party in a few days, they probably shouldn't be on a jury where you're presenting a case. Again, I don't know. Would love to hear from you. Yeah. If you do know this, the answers to this. I think this was no build uh, purposely uh, as a message that, um, you know, if you speak out against the district attorney's office, this is what happens. And that's even, you know, Kerry Ashmore even told me after this case got no-billed in a phone conversation I had with him, you go against the boss, you go against the house. That was a threat, um, meaning that you guys better, better shut up. But then you start looking into the relationships, okay? So we've got a district attorney who is related through marriage to Alcatee. You've got Al-Khatib, who is in pictures, having a great time with Corey months before 
uh, Corey ran over and killed Katie Palmer. Then you've got Corey Foster, who was represented by Brett Smith in a DWI case. Uh, pardon me, Corey Foster's family was represented by Brett Smith in a DWI case prior to Brett becoming DA. So you've got a triangle there. So do you guys get that? The district attorney, Brett Smith, who was the boss of Carrie Ashmore, you know, the prosecutor with the tie to the juror. Well, Brett Smith himself, before being elected into the position of district attorney, represented Corey Foster in a DWI case. A DWI means driving while intoxicated. Just another connection on top of all the other connections. Officer Alcatib, who is known friends to Corey Foster. At the very least, their wives were besties. Officer Alcatib, who is related through marriage to D.A. Brett Smith. Brett Smith, who represented Corey Foster in a previous DWI case and is now supposed to prosecute him. Brett Smith, who is the boss of Carrie Ashmore. Carrie Ashmore, who is married to the district district clerk in charge of jury selection, Carrie Ashmore and his wife, friends with a member of the grand jury. That's far too many connections for me in a case that is so clearly a manslaughter case due to reckless behavior, yet not being pursued as such. Uh, Brett didn't tell us that, hey, I represented the Foster family in a DWI before this. Uh, hey, by, by the way, um, you know, this, this trooper who, um, you know, I'll tell you in private did a bad job, but he won't address it publicly at all. That's uh, related by, by marriage to him. Um, yeah. So when you start drawing all the lines together, um, it starts to become more obvious and more just glaring in your face what happened. And that's why we aren't going to stop. Um, you know, justice for, for, for us, Kayla is, um, uh, Corey Foster in a criminal court going through a trial. Uh, that's justice for us because it would be out in the open. We would know exactly what would be presented and he would have to be held, held accountable. Now, if a jury in an open courtroom Whatever they would uh, decide, what Corey would be punished for, that's justice. So Corey Foster in a criminal trial, in a criminal court would be justice. Brett Smith not being district attorney of Grayson County anymore, which we're actively uh, working on making sure that uh, soon he'll be known as a former district attorney of Grayson County. Uh, that would be justice. And Tarif Al-Khatib no longer being an officer. And at least no longer being an officer here in Grayson County that would be justice as well. And that's what we're fighting for. DPS could look at this and say, hey, what, what happened here was not right. Instead, in my opinion, what they've done, they've circled the wagons around Tarif. Um, so we filed a, a complaint against Tarif, wanted to make sure we had everything. Like for instance, we didn't have most of the body camera footage until we had to go through multiple FOIA requests, uh, Freedom of, of Information Act requests to get these. Because Tarif didn't hand over all the evidence um, and he didn't present that to uh, the DA didn't uh, because again he was trying to um, I believe I, I believe um, help out his his friend and so filed a complaint 
last November, DPS, Investigated Tarif, and so far, uh, this is still a very fluid situation that we're in with DPS, but um, this is how it transpired. Um, we filed a complaint to DPS regarding Tarif, okay? DPS then went to go talk to Brett Smith to get all the evidence from Brett, Brett Smith. Um, DPS then reviews everything from the DA's office, right? DPS then provides DPS management or leadership with their findings and what they believe uh, Tarif should be rep reprimanded on. Then DPS reprimands DPS. So DPS investigates DPS, then DPS passes judgment on D DPS. Now, when, when I asked, uh, because I've talked to, I went and had a meeting with the chief of the Texas Highway Patrol who came up here to see us. Um, I asked what evidence, and um, they can't release that. They can't release what evidence they looked at, what evidence they had access to. They can't release what reprimands Tarif got and what punishment he faced. So, absolutely. And they, from what I was told, they <laughs> reprimanded Tarif, but Tarif would have to miss at least one day of work for them to divulge anything about evidence or what his rep reprimand was. So that doesn't make any sense. DPS has to do better than that. John believes that as long as Brett Smith is the appointed district attorney, they will never receive the justice they feel they deserve. And that DA spot is back up for election in just a couple of years in 2024. Good. I hope you don't get voted back in. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, made sure he was very aware that me and my family were going to do everything within our power to remove him from office. And then a couple of days later, we put up billboards down the highway, uh, big help wanted signs for a new Grayson County district attorney. And uh, we've gotten, again, a lot of support from this community. Um, this community sees what Brett Smith did and what he's responsible for. And I believe everybody looks at us and looks at Katie and sees that Katie could have been their mother, their wife, their sister, their daughter, or their cousin, and puts themselves in our shoes and goes, what if, what if that was me? And I am ready to refer to Brett Smith as the former district attorney of Grayson County. John, Bella, Brandon, Rhonda, Tony, and the rest of Katie's family will never get back what was taken from them. There will always be a missing piece of their heart, and they won't be able to quite repair that. A mother, a daughter, a wife is irreplaceable. Her life meant so much to so many people, and that life was stripped from her, 100% out of her control. When someone else's life is taken from them, who do we hold responsible? Only the person who took her life, and it's only him that knows exactly what happened that morning. Again, I say, if he faces the consequences of involuntary manslaughter, what is a few years of his life compared to the life that was ended? Take responsibility. Give a family peace. 
we just don't want this to happen to another family. So, uh, again, nothing's going to bring her back. Um, I told her brother, one, one of her brothers a while ago, that I think the justice that we'll eventually get, we won't see. Um, and that's because of our actions, meaning that we've publicly tried to have, have held Tariq Alkatib accountable, Corey Foster accountable, Brett Smith accountable as well. As it stands now, Corey Foster is not going to be put to trial in a criminal court of law. Um, Tarif Al-Khatib is um, protected by a very powerful state agency, and Brett Smith is an elected official, and um, he doesn't—he really doesn't answer to anybody. He will when it comes time to vote, but I mean, he really won't face any. Um, you know, strong re repercussions for his uh, apparent and absolute failure. But when this happens to another family, because unfortunately it, it will, there's nothing we could do to prevent this from happening again. Um, maybe somebody who gets in their car and feels that they probably shouldn't drive doesn't. Maybe somebody that gets in the car uh, can't see, pulls over, or turns on the damn defroster and doesn't put another life at risk, doesn't ruin another family. Um, may, maybe that happens. We'll never know. Maybe that does happen. Maybe the next um, trooper like Tarif Al-Khatib, Al uh, maybe when they pull up on scene and uh, have the ability to do a buddy a solid... Maybe they don't. Maybe they recuse them themselves and have somebody else take take over. Maybe that happens. We'll never know. Uh, maybe the next time a case like this comes up in front of a district attorney and um, you've got another family who's advocating for justice or you just don't want to put in the work for it or the legwork to make sure that um, you have a good presentation or to just give a damn. Um, maybe are being so public and so hypercritical of their office, maybe they don't do that next time. But again, we'll never know. So I think the justice that we eventually seek will get, but we will never know. As long as another family doesn't have to go through what we've gone through and they're left with questions and not answers, then um, I'm fine with what, with what we've done and we're not going to stop. So before he died, she made it apparent that she did want to be an organ donor. But this is during COVID times that she is hit and killed. And apparently during COVID, there was this huge, there were these huge problems with the process of organ donation. It had gone down 50% during the pandemic. It was only being done in the most life-threatening cases. So John, thankfully, was able to work with Southwest Transplant Alliance to spread his wife's love even further, and she was able to be an organ donor just like she had wished to do so. Katie was honored in so many ways after her death. Seriously, it's incredible the impact she left on her community. The middle school names Katie's closet after her as they help kids in need of essential items obtain clothing. And there's multiple other things that are done in her name. And then the Katie Palmer Project was born. 
This is a nonprofit that was presented to John by a local firefighter named Dustin. So basically, after Katie was killed, Dustin reached out to John and was like, hey, I really want to put up some Christmas lights for you. And this was a huge help to John, who was still grieving his wife. And I mean, he's still grieving to this day. But Dustin just wanted to do something nice for him in these really hard times. And John really appreciated that. But then Dustin wanted to take it even further. He thought they could do this for families all across Texas and, you know, maybe ultimately all across the nation where they put up Christmas lights for families that are in need, that aren't able to really do this for themselves during the holidays. And they started the Katie Palmer Project. So it's firefighters who are donating their time and then they're going out and they're putting up these Christmas lights that are um, paid for by the Katie Palmer Project and... It's just, it's, it's a really cool thing for them to do. People are volunteering, they are doing good work, and then this Katie Palmer project finds families in need, and they've been able to do that all across Texas. I know they're looking to spread even further, and I actually let John know that my dad is a firefighter in Utah, so... I haven't worked out all the details with him yet, but I am hoping to reach out to him and see if him and any of his, you know, fellow firefighter friends would be willing to donate their time and kind of bring the Katie Palmer project to Utah and spread further. So if you know any firefighters that are open to spreading this project and just donating some of their time just during the holidays to go put up a few you know, Christmas lights on these people's houses that are in need of just some care and love, then, you know, go to the Katie Palmer Project, visit their website, and there is a place where you can sign up to be involved. Guys, make sure to go and find Justice for Katie Palmer on Facebook, on Instagram. They are putting forward calls to action here in the next few weeks. And John really asks that you guys go find them and follow them on social media so that you can be involved and help spread Katie's story. Because again, the only way we can do this and help them find justice is by putting pressure on the DA's office to stand up and do better. By putting pressure on the DPS to also do better in their investigation and their handling of their officers. So please go and support them by finding them on social media. Visit the Katie Palmer Project and see how you can get involved. If you know a firefighter, let them know. It's okay to stand up. I mean, it is okay, you know, because change doesn't happen unless you have somebody or a group of people or a community, which is, which is what we've, we've had, stand up and say what's happened is not right. And it's not just, and it needs to change. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. And our guest today was John Palmer. Our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at InPajamas Music. And our palate cleanser is always the cutest Charlie Waters. Make sure to find us across all social media platforms, but definitely appreciate those five-star reviews. Keep them coming. And please share this episode to help spread Katie's story. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today I'm going to be talking about hiccups. Hiccups. Do you know how hiccups work? Well, today is your day to learn. 
Hiccups are an involuntary contraction of, of the diaphragm. That's the muscle that separates your chest to your abdomen. This involuntary contraction makes your vulgar cords close very quickly. And this produces the sound of a hiccup. Bye. Have a great day.